Okay, today uh, I'm going to be doing my last chronological lecture, uh, meaning uh, 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 we're going to be going through uh, an entire period. I'm going to talk about uh, the period between 1877 and 1896, uh, and then the rest of the course we will backtrack and do uh, thematic uh, lectures on uh, labor, on uh, the New South, uh, on the West, and, and others. Now, between 1877 and 1896, uh, America changed as much uh, as it did between 1861 and 1877. But you wouldn't know it if you just looked at the surface of events of both of these eras. After all, the years between 1861 and 1877 featured the most well-known, bloody, and I think it's fair to say important war in American history, the Civil War, uh, as well as a period between 1865 and 1877 that was filled with momentous events. The assassination of Abraham Lincoln, the impeachment of Andrew Johnson, the election of 1876, and momentous legislation like the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, all framed against the dramatic backdrop of Reconstruction. Against this, the period between 1877 and 1896 can't offer very much. Only one dramatic presidential election, 1896, that actually ended rather anticlimactically with uh, what for the times was a relatively one-sided uh, victory for the Republican presidential candidate, William McKinley. Uh, there were no impeachments during this period. Uh, there was an assassination of uh, President James Garfield in 1881, but of course no one has ever compared James Garfield with Abraham Lincoln. Uh, a distinguished, undistinguished series of rather forgettable uh, presidents, a bunch of guys uh, mostly with beards. Even some history professors have trouble naming the five presidents uh, between 1877 and 1896. Uh, Rutherford B. Hayes, James Garfield, uh, Chester Arthur, Grover Cleveland, Benjamin Harrison. Uh, some important legislation between 1877 and 1896, but uh, nothing anywhere as dramatic as, say, the 14th Amendment, which I think is so important. Uh, the Interstate Commerce Act of 1877, which I'll talk about a little later, for example, just doesn't have the same ring to it, uh, I think you'll agree, as the 14th Amendment. And so, in general, the years between 1877 and 1896 just don't carry the same emotional power as the Civil War and Reconstruction years did. And yet, as I said, America probably changed as much during those years as it did between 1861 and 1877. But to see those changes... Uh, we'll have to look beneath the political surface of the nation and look at other trends, cultural trends, technological trends, demographic trends, and most of all, economic trends. Because this is the true measure of the changes in American society that took place between 1877 and 1896. In fact, to paraphrase the famous internal campaign slogan of Bill Clinton in 1992 during the presidential election, 
If you want to understand the period between 1877 and 1896 in the United States, you have to understand, as Bill Clinton did in, 18, in 1992, uh, and as Barack Obama did in 2008, that it's the economy. It's the economy. So, when we talk about the period between 1877 and 1896, we start by talking about the economy, by talking about class issues, and the growth of industrial capitalism, meaning large-scale manufacturing and finance. Now, I've already spoken uh, about the growth of industrial capitalism in the United States after the Civil War in the context of the Reconstruction period between 1865 and 1877, and how it affected the Northern reaction to, and eventually its retreat from Reconstruction. Now, probably the reason that some historians tend to underrate the period between 1877 and 1896 uh, uh, in terms of change is that it did not feature a new economic trend, but only a continuation of one that had already started, the growth of industrial capitalism. But it was between 1877 and 1896 that industrial capitalism truly took off in the United States, making everything that had come before it look puny by comparison. In fact, the period of most explosive growth can probably be telescoped even further uh, to between 1878 and 1893, uh, 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 since the years between 1873 and 1878, as we discussed last time, and from 1893 to 1897 were depression years. So the real growth takes place between 1878 and 1893. Between those years, the gross national product of the nation doubled, its manufacturing output tripled, railroad track mileage as well as locomotive and railroad car manufacture doubled, and in fact, by the early 1880s, the nation produced more wealth through manufacturing than through agriculture and had passed Great Britain in industrial output to be number one in the world. Now, this explosive growth was fueled by a number of factors. First, those 15 years between 1878 and 1893 saw a huge influx of immigrants to the United States, over 3 million in number. Now, unlike previous immigrants, who were primarily from Great Britain and Ireland and Northern Europe, these immigrants were from Southern Europe, Eastern Europe, from Italy, from Poland, from Russia. And, unlike many previous immigrants, these new immigrants tended to be unskilled, and thus provided a source of labor for the rapidly expanding American industrial economy. And, unlike many of their predecessors, they moved not to the countryside to become farmers, but to the cities, changing the demographics of many urban areas almost overnight, and, in general, contributing to a trend towards urbanization, which is also a hallmark of this period between 1878 and 1893, which also fueled America's industrial growth during this time. 
also facilitating the industrial capitalist expansion were huge technological advances. And it's really in this area that the United States became a new nation uh, during this period. It was during this time that the means of mass producing steel was perfected. And this is very important because manufacturers could now use steel, which is so much tougher and more versatile and more flexible than its predecessor, which is iron, could use steel to build everything from railroad track to skyscrapers. In fact, it was during this time, this 1878 to 1893 period, that many of the modern inventions that we take for granted today came on the scene. The telephone, the electric light, the elevator, the typewriter, the internal combustion engine, which made it possible to uh, build automobiles, the electric generator, which made it possible to generate mass electric power uh, uh, so that streets and offices and private homes could be lighted from a single source. The phonograph. And even by the 1890s, the motion picture, uh, uh, making it possible to make movies. Even standard time zones uh, 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 came to, uh, came to be during this period. Uh, uh, these were a creation of the railroads, uh, uh, making it possible to coordinate business uh, 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 and uh, uh, coordinate business activities uh, and thus to help grow business. And finally, what fueled the huge growth of industrial capitalism between 1878 and 1893 were the innovations of the capitalists themselves, the men who owned and ran the large industrial and financial firms of the nation, the men who were known as the robber barons, and who, for uh, purely selfish reasons, uh, greed, desire to crush competition, uh, visions of personal glory, uh, who pressed for even more and more efficient production techniques that made the United States the envy of the rest of the world. But these robber barons also adopted corporate strategies that uh, exacerbated many of the class rivalries and class divisions that were also a hallmark of the period between 1877 and 1896, which brings us to yet another theme of these years, which uh, was, again, not a new problem. It started with the Civil War, but now became a greater problem after 1877. Now, what were these corporate strategies that caused so much of the class-based anger that so widened the gap between rich and poor that was a, a hallmark of this period, which again, as I said, began earlier, but it accelerated between 1877 and 1896? Well, three of these corporate strategies, I think, are significant. First, the trust or the monopoly. Then, the concept of vertical integration. And finally, the holding company. And to take them in order. First, the trust or the monopoly. Now, the years after the Civil War featured brutal competition in many American industries. And the natural inclination of the corporation owners was to limit and control that competition. Now, they did this either by agreeing among themselves to divide 
the markets between them or to fix prices, an arrangement which is sometimes called a pool, or in less gentlemanly fashion, to destroy each other and eventually acquire each other by merger or by a hostile acquisition or by putting competitors out of business and buying up the remnants of the destroyed company. In this way, large companies could come to control a particular industry and dominate it, dominate it completely. Now, this was called alternately a trust or a monopoly. And the 1880s and 1890s were the years of monopoly in American industry, the time when many of the names of the men whose names are still familiar today, uh, Rockefeller, Morgan, Carnegie, uh, Armour, Duke, uh, acquired monopoly or near-monopoly control of their industries. The oil industry, steel, tobacco, sugar, railroads, meatpacking. And by virtue of these monopolies, these corporate barons were free to raise prices, to grant preferences to favored customers, to limit output, and generally uh, to interfere with the workings of the free market. Now, a second way to defeat the market was with the concept of vertical integration. Here, a producer would try to control all aspects of the production and distribution of the commodity that he made, of the product that he made, so that he never had to pay someone else for a service he needed, but could do it himself. Now, an example of this technique, and a good example, would be John D. Rockefeller and his Standard Oil Company. Now, by the late 1870s, Rockefeller had achieved complete vertical integration in his oil business, meaning he controlled oil in the ground in western Pennsylvania and increasingly uh, by, the, uh, uh, by, by the late 1870s uh, in the west, control the oil in the ground. He controlled the pipelines used to transport the oil to the railroads, where they would be shipped. He controlled enough of an interest in the railroads to guarantee low rates uh, to in bringing his oil to the refineries. He controlled the oil refineries. And he even controlled the retail outlets, what we would call gas stations today, where his oil was sold. So Rockefeller controlled the oil from the ground to the home, from the beginning of its journey to its end, in what might be called a super monopoly. Not just a monopoly of a product, but a monopoly of everything connected to that product as well. And third and finally, there was the device of the holding company. Now, this was a technique used not so much by industrialists per se, but by financiers, the men who lent the industrialists money, like J.P. Morgan, for example, who was a banker and not a manufacturer, say, like Andrew Carnegie, who made steel. J.P. Morgan would acquire stock interests in a number of companies, and then he would combine them into what was known as a holding company, a company that held the stock of enough companies in an industry to effectively monopolize that industry, to control its pricing and output. Now, even though Morgan did not own 100% of every company, uh, 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 in every industry that he had an interest in, 
the holding company device allowed financiers like J.P. Morgan to become industrialists. Eventually, in 1901, J.P. Morgan bought Andrew Carnegie's uh, a, a steel company, Carnegie Steel. Morgan then combined it with smaller steel companies that he controlled through holding companies and created United States Steel. The holding company device also allowed industrialists to become financiers, to go in the other direction, so to speak. Rockefeller, for example, uh, eventually decided to uh, carry the concept of vertical integration to its logical extreme and just start his own bank, Chase Manhattan Bank, and through it control, via holding companies, other industries, creating the Rockefeller empire, uh, uh, which we are familiar with today, one that is so diverse and so far-flung into so many industries that many of us don't even know that it started with oil. Now, these corporate strategies, along with uh, production efficiencies, uh, did, uh, to be fair to the robber barons like Carnegie and Rockefeller, uh, 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 create a great deal of wealth. Uh, in the United States uh, between 1877 and 1896 and pushed the American economy forward. The problem, of course, was not the creation of this wealth, however, but the distribution of this wealth. Because in a period like this one, with no significant income taxes on uh, uh, either the state or the federal level, those were yet to come, uh, the gap between the wealthy and the poor between the wealthy and the working class was immense. The average industrial or financial baron probably spent more in one week than the average American earned in an entire year. Sometimes he spent more in three days. And this consumption by the industrial elite, to make matters even worse uh, in terms of class rivalries, was conspicuous, public, and open, in a way almost calculated to offend poor Americans. Lavish parties, covered, of course, by the newspapers. Summer cottages in places like Newport, Rhode Island, uh, cottages that were probably about as big as this building. Huge mansions in the cities, fleets of carriages, armies of servants, in all a display of opulent vulgarity, unmarked in the history of the country, even uh, by our present-day corporate vulgarians. With, incidentally, one exception, uh, John D. Rockefeller, who was a strict Baptist, uh, he lived actually relatively simply for someone of his wealth. But virtually all of the other robber barons were basically out of control in terms of spending and conspicuous consumption. Now, there were about 15 times the number of millionaires in the United States during the 1890s than there had been before the Civil War. Approximately 4,000 millionaires in all. And when you consider that $1 million then is probably the equivalent of $300 million or $400 million today, it is clear that there were also thousands of men who were worth less than $1 million in the 1890s who would still be considered to be multimillionaires today. So, with all this inequality of wealth fueled by all this consolidation of industrial capitalism, it was inevitable that a movement to limit this corporate and financial power in the form of a trust or monopoly regulation uh, uh, was uh, 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 inevitable. 
But this antitrust movement, it was called the antitrust movement, uh, began in a very inauspicious atmosphere for government control of private enterprise. Because if there was ever a time in uh, American history when free market economics, what we call laissez-faire economics, uh, dominated America's political and cultural climate, it was during this period between 1877 and 1896. Now, you will recall uh, from your reading for last time how Northern Republicans, by the end of Reconstruction, were calling for an end to the imposition of federal power in the South. Well, along the same lines in the North, they were calling for government to get out of the way, to leave American business alone, so the economy could ostensibly grow unaffected. Now, as we will see, there was a great deal of hypocrisy involved in this, since many of those who were the most vociferous in demanding that the government keep its hands off business were also the first to call for the intervention of federal troops to protect private property whenever there was a strike. What many of these people really meant was that they wanted to control the federal government and the state in general so that when business needed it to just leave it alone, it would. And when business needed it to intervene on its behalf, it would. In effect, they wanted government to do the bidding of business. And for the most part, during this period, they got what they wanted. Now, again, to be fair to these people, and by the 1880s and 1890s, they comprised large numbers of Republicans and Democrats uh, in the North and the Midwest. There really wasn't a great deal of difference between Republicans and Democrats uh, uh, on this issue uh, during, during this time, the way there would be today. Uh, these people wanted business to flourish in the United States because they felt an expanding economy would benefit all Americans, even working class Americans, by creating jobs. And, except during the Depression of 1893 to 1897, the nation was creating jobs at an impressive rate. And so, supporters of industrial capitalism in the United States, and there were many, argued uh, for a form of what we would call trickle-down economic theory today, or the adage that a rising tide lifts all boats. Now, whether in fact this was true uh, during this period of time uh, is a matter of debate, and it's all relative. Per capita income for all Americans rose substantially between 1877 and 1896, although uh, not as much in terms of real income. But it rose much more substantially for the rich and for the upper middle class than for any other group. We'll see the same thing uh, in the 1980s in the Reagan administration. And during the depression of 1893 to 1897, and there was a severe depression during this time, rivaling the Great Depression of the 1930s in its severity, the working class and the poor bore the brunt of the times. The corporation heads and high-level managers did not lose their jobs. The unskilled workers and the plants did. So the question as to whether industrial capitalism was good for the American worker uh, was then, as it is today, a relative one and depended then as now on your political perspective and your personal perspective. 
But it should be noted, in fairness, that uh, whether they were right or wrong on this question, many supporters of industrial capitalists, many if not all, did proceed from decent motives, a desire to help all segments of American society by creating an expanding economy. And we're not necessarily the greedy, uncaring misanthropes they have sometimes been portrayed as. Of course, some of them were. In fact, we'll be hearing about one of them uh, on Friday, Jay Gould, who probably was the worst of the bunch, the worst of the robber barons. In any case, the atmosphere in the United States during this period was uh, distinctly free market in its orientation. And it was difficult for the advocates of government regulation of the trusts to get a fair hearing in the court of public opinion. In an era uh, in which, after all, Karl Marx was not only influ influential, but actually alive. Uh, he didn't die until 1883, and in which socialism, anarchism, uh, 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 and Marxism were important elements of the violent class struggle in Europe. Anyone calling for antitrust laws in the United States ran the risk of being labeled a socialist, an anarchist, or a communist. But despite this, in 1890, Congress passed what was at the time a landmark piece of legislation, the Sherman Antitrust Act. The Sherman Antitrust Act prohibited, quote, combinations and restraint of trade and commerce. But it didn't define what this meant. And in the pro-business atmosphere of the 1890s, this was a mistake, because in the first real antitrust case to grow out of this act, the Supreme Court ruled in the 1895 case of E.C. Knight Company, Knight was a sugar refining monopoly, that manufacturing, amazingly, was not to be considered commerce under the Sherman Act effectively emasculating the Sherman Act. Now, this completely illogical decision, and it was truly off the wall, was typical of how the Supreme Court and much of the American government apparatus in general treated attempts to regulate business in any way during this period. The Sherman Act, as we will see next time, in fact, was used not to prosecute trusts, but to prosecute unions who, by a witch, by striking, were considered to be conspiring to interfere with commerce by harming the private property of the company against which they were striking. It would not be until the 20th century that the Sherman Antitrust Act would be used uh, uh, as it was intended to be used to prosecute business monopolies and not unions. Now, a similar fate befell the attempt to regulate the railroads. Railroads, which were uh, one of the main engines of economic growth in America uh, during this period, were notorious for setting high freight rates for the Western farmers, who essentially were stuck with these high rates uh, since there was often no alternative. There was no competition to these railroads. The railroads were also notorious for discriminating in favor of corporations who shipped in bulk uh, and thus could get lower rates. Now, we'll talk more about railroads in our class uh, on the West, uh, which will be next week, but for now, 
uh, I want to talk about the attempts to regulate these practices by the railroads legislatively. Now, the first attempt to regulate the railroads came from the states, which uh, established state commissions to regulate railroad freight rates and warehouse charges. And in a landmark case called Munn v. Illinois, M-U-N-N, uh, in 1877, the Supreme Court upheld these state regulations, ruling that the states could regulate a private business uh, and at this time the railroads were privately owned, there's no Amtrak, uh, uh, they could regulate a private business if it was, quote, clothed with a public purpose. This is one of the few times during this period that the Supreme Court ruled against business. But since so much railroad traffic obviously was interstate, and because only Congress under the Constitution could control interstate commerce, pressure grew for a federal law which, after a great deal of struggle and negotiation, was finally passed in 1877. It was called the Interstate Commerce Act, which created the Interstate Commerce Commission, or ICC. Now, the ICC attempted to regulate discriminatory or fixed railroad rates, which, to quote the language of the uh, Interstate Commerce Act, must be reasonable and just. But as with the Sherman Antitrust Act, there was no attempt to define these words. Again, a mistake, leaving it to the federal courts, which were generally sympathetic to business and uh, to the railroads themselves uh, uh, to interpret them favorably, favorably to themselves. And in addition, the uh, Interstate Commerce Commission, uh, as part of the legislative compromise that produced it, was not clothed with any meaningful enforcement powers, making it somewhat of a weak paper tiger, so to speak, all growl and no teeth. Once again, as with the Sherman Antitrust Act, it would take until the 20th century before the Interstate Commerce Commission could enforce its edicts against railroads in any meaningful way. So the years between 1877 and 1896, then, were the years of effectively unfettered industrial capitalism in America, a time of explosive economic growth and worsening class resentments, as we will see, whereas, as where millionaires' mansions sat mere blocks from poor tenements, where the rich consumed commodities and where labor itself as Karl Marx had predicted, became a commodity to be bought and sold, just as a worker had previously sold the product of his labor. And where class issues, labor issues, the economy, had become center stage in American life, replacing racial issues as the main focus of national attention, and where these class issues would remain until at least the middle of the 20th century. Now, of course, there were other issues uh, uh, besides purely class-related issues uh, uh, in America during this time, and uh, two in particular deserve brief mention. First, civil service reform. Now, the power of patronage of the spoil system where the victorious political party got access to all sorts of government jobs. Uh, this practice had gotten completely out of hand 
by the 1880s to a point where a president, James Garfield, was assassinated over a patronage job by a disappointed office seeker. Now, the result of this assassination was the 1883 Pendleton Civil Service Act, uh, bringing a significant number of federal jobs, uh, numbers that would grow to comprise much of the federal workforce by the early 20th century, under the umbrella of uh, competitive examinations. And most states and localities uh, soon followed uh, a suit. Uh, not, not all states and localities. We still have Richard Daly, Chicago. So that was the first issue I think is worth mentioning, civil service reform. The other is the tariff. And that's the other big political issue of the period 1877 to 1896. And the tariff issue is important enough to swing some presidential elections. Uh, so it's of great moment, the tariff issue at the time, although it's largely an issue that is overlooked today. Now, to summarize briefly the tariff positions of the two major political parties, the Democrats generally favored low tariffs, uh, uh, or what is known as free trade, uh, arguing that low tariffs would lower the cost of goods to consumers in the United States and expand American exports to foreign nations uh, and help the economy in general in this way. The Republicans, on the other hand, favored higher tariffs, uh, and the Republican McKinley Tariff of 1890, McKinley, of course, is a future president, was one of the highest in United States history. Republicans argued that because America was a comparatively high-wage country, it would be flooded with cheaper imports from low-wage countries, uh, uh, throwing American industries out of business and American workers out of jobs. Uh, this probably will sound familiar to you today if you're reading, uh, reading, the, uh, you know, reading the media. This, of course, is an eternal argument uh, in American political life. Uh, it's a constant throughout our history. Whether it's called the tariff or free trade or globalization, it's always an issue uh, and still very much alive today as arguments over globalization uh, or even the argument over NAFTA, the North American Free Trade uh, uh, Agreement in the 1990s, proved. And we will see what incoming President uh, Obama will do about renegotiating this and other free trade agreements, uh, as he has uh, threatened to do. But even these two issues, the tariff issue uh, and civil service reform, uh, as important and as contentious uh, uh, as they were, were but moons uh, uh, rotating around the sun, so to speak. And the sun was the issue of class, of labor of industrial capitalism and its effects, which dominated the national discourse between 1877 and 1896. And over the final weeks of this course, we will largely be talking about this issue, this issue of class and labor, and defining other issues through it, as we see how America confronts and works through this very contentious issue during the last three decades of the 19th century.